What if you were better equipped to be at your best in any situation life throws at you? What if you were able to realize game-changing breakthroughs and achieve your goals fearlessly and without restriction? My mission is to help you level up your mindset to achieve peak performance so you can accomplish the most audacious goals you have in life and in business while embracing the highs and lows of every journey. To do that, I'm going to explore topics that challenge how you think and help explain why you show up in the world the way you do. By accepting the challenge, you'll think better, you'll feel better, and you'll perform better every day. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, mindset and peak performance coach, business consultant, thought leader, author, and award-winning educator. And it's a good day to do great things. This is the Quest for Life podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode as I'll be spending time with John McLernan. Coach John, as he's known, is the founder of Freedom Nutrition Coaching, where he teaches people how to lose 50 to 80 plus pounds and reverse engineer their own healthy lifestyle without diets. His approach is to focus on brain-driven weight loss by marrying the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection to create life-changing transformations for his clients. This work is particularly relevant to John as he's lost over 100 pounds himself and maintained that weight loss, which has also helped him deal more effectively with an anxiety disorder. Prior to entering the nutrition and weight loss coaching space, John spent time as a nanotechnology research chemist, a Navy Marine engineer, a globetrotting nomad, a power line technician, an oil field heavy equipment operator, and creator and host of the Between the Before and After podcast. He also survived an attempted murder where he was nearly beaten to death in South Africa, a truly diverse background to be sure. Coach John, welcome to the Quest for Life podcast. How are you? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Currently time recording. I'm over here in Australia, so I'm escaping the Canadian winter. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. The weather's brilliant over here. It's, uh, it, it's interesting here in Arizona. It was 80 degrees a couple of days ago, and then we had wind gusts in upwards of 50 miles an hour this morning. It was, yeah, it was absolutely crazy. So getting into this, you've got an incredibly diverse background. Talk a little bit about that as well as the attempt on your life in South Africa. Yeah, and I prob- probably my background, uh, I guess, like I, have, I have this kind of crazy backstory. And if you'd asked me at 20 years old, because I'm, I'm now 41, um, if you would ask me at 20 years old, like, how do you see the next 20 years of your life playing out? Of course, I never could have predicted this, you know. I was, I was going to university studying nanotechnology research. I was getting prepared to go into a PhD program in, in nanotechnology. And then I decided to join the Navy. I was like, I, don't, I, re- I had this moment of realization. I don't want to work in a lab for the rest of my life, even mm-hmm. though chemistry is interesting to me. So I joined the Navy as a marine engineer. Um, did about for three years. And then I met the woman who would later become my wife. Uh, she's from Australia, part of the reason I'm over here. We went over the, to Australia for a year, came back. I did three more years in the Navy. And then I realized I don't want to be an absentee husband uh, because the Navy just owns your time. The military owns your time. Mm-hmm. And I was away a lot. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to be an absentee husband. And I came home to my wife one day and I said, why don't, we, why don't we just start traveling the world? We always talk about doing this thing, traveling the world. And everybody talks about it, but let's actually do it. And that was about October of, uh, October of 2009. And by January, we were on a plane to Mexico. And we thought we'd go for like six months because in, in our mind, like traveling for six months sounded like a long time. 
that journey ended up taking over three years. We wow. just traveled and in, along the way, we met a gentleman from South Africa while living in Mexico. He came over to live with us in, in Poland when we were living over there. And then he invited us to come down to South Africa and be a part of a program that his parents were running. And it was, it was uh, working with underprivileged youth, helping them to develop life skills to improve their employability because the South African public education system just fails their, their young people horribly. Perhaps it's different now, but at that time it was just atrocious. And so it was a really rewarding program to be a part of. And we're working out on a nature reserve. And um, this is where this, this attack happened. So we're working out on this nature reserve. And one Monday morning, I walked, there's a, there's a cabin up there. So Monday to Friday, we would stay in the cabin. Weekends, we would go back into the town. And Monday morning, coming you know, to our cabin, our cabin's kind of a mess. And we said, okay, we'll have to talk to the weekend facilitator. Just ask them to clean up after ourselves. You know, detail didn't register in our brain. There's also a helicopter kind of like flying overhead. But again, we thought, oh, maybe someone doing a, doing a tour, you know, a, a, fl a flyover tour of the reserve because there's wildlife there and things like that. Mm -hmm. So again, these little details, of course, don't register until <laughs> later. So that night, everyone's in the, in the dining hall. So the buildings are arranged in kind of an L formation. So the top of the L would be the dining hall. Then there's the student's dormitory. The bottom of the L is the washroom and showering facilities. And then off to the side, the pointy part of the L would be our cabin tucked, the instructor's cabin tucked away in the bushes. So I was walking back to the cabin. I'm by myself. It's nighttime. Um, this is dark out. We're on a nature reserve. So there's not a lot of light around us. There's a few, but they try not to have too much light pollution out there um, outside of the buildings. And I get to my cabin. The door is slightly ajar. I'm in a great mood. Been working with my students. You know, we feel really fulfilled in the work that we're doing. It was really, really cool. The students were loving working with us. It was a really transformative experience. Doesn't register in my brain. Like, why is the door open or slightly cracked open? I thought maybe I just forgot to shut it again deadbolt sticking out of the door door has been jimmied open i didn't pick up on that detail open the door there's three guys sitting at the table in my cabin drinking rooibos tea which is means red bush in in afrikaans it's a red it's a common tea to drink over there and dipping rusks in their tea rusks are this hard like south african version of biscotti hmm. and again my brain still is not registering there's something wrong with the situation because in my mind i'm not thinking i'm about to be jumped and like nearly beaten to death and I recognized one of the guys and I recognized his face because he's one of the Rangers, but he wasn't in uniform. So my first thought was, Hey, is there something wrong with the cabin? Did you just show up to like fix the water or something like that? Did someone make it, you know, I didn't see the fourth guy, fourth guy is outside the cabin and he smashes me across the head with a rock as I'm like trying to figure out like what's going on. And in that moment, of course, now my brain goes into overdrive. Like what is going on? I'm having a hard time now contemplating, what is happening? My brain is probably like, this isn't real. I can't, this isn't happening. And I was wearing a golf shirt, similar to what I'm wearing, to, wearing today. And, and, and I remember this guy, because the other guys now jump up out of the cabin, right? They're, they're compiling out the door. And this guy grabs my, my shirt by the scruff. And, and I remember him looking, this is the part that sticks in my mind the most. He was looking right at me, smiling. And he said, shh. And he swings a rock and smashes me across the head again. Now, like at this point, blood's pouring down my face and, and, and like I'm obviously something serious and wrong. I'm starting to scream for help, but I'm also concussed and mm -hmm. stunned. I don't know really what's happening. You know, I, I, I collapse and, and they just like pile on and just start kicking and stomping and beating on me. <clears throat> Again, my brain's still going like this isn't real. This isn't happening. I can't die tonight. This isn't how my life is supposed to go. And, and for those who might be listening, I also want to say um, because this is number reviewers going to have done quite a bit of work. I'm able to talk about it in this fashion. It was a very traumatic experience to go through. And this will spill over into my weight loss story as well. 
Um, but at this point in time, I, I don't know where I got the strength to get to, like to fight my way to my feet and, and somehow break free from them and sort of stagger, stumble my way over to this other building that's a couple hundred feet away where everybody else is. Cause nobody heard me screaming for help after the fact, like my students said, we thought we heard the monkey screeching. I was like, Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. For whatever reason, they didn't follow me and they could have, I don't know why they didn't. And so, I, I mean, I, I kind of do because obviously I, I believe in, I believe in God. Uh, I, I am a Christian, some amount of faith and I, I don't, I don't wear it on my sleeve. I just try to live my principles, but um, yeah. I, I, um, so I really believe that God intervened in, in, in that experience, but like one more hit across the head and I would have been fully unconscious and they would have just kept the beating going until I was done because that's what they do over there. There's actually like a cultural precedent where like they don't just want to shoot you and be done with you. They want to make you suffer and watch you suffer. It's a, there's a power dynamic that's in play there. And ironically, that might have been the thing that like saved my life because they didn't even, they had knives, but they didn't stab me either. So mm. there's all these different things. So anyways, you know, I, I stumble into the building, blood's pouring down my face. I got boot marks all over my body. Like, I don't know what way is up barely. I just saw the light and kind of headed for the light. Um, and, you know, I've been attacked and we end up being trapped in this building. Uh, we didn't know how many guys were out there at this point. I still didn't know who, how many attackers there were even like, I'm, I'm still, you know, and so our students are in there, we're in there, myself and my wife, and, and they're trying to smash down the doors with shovels and things like that. Like, and so there's just pandemonium, you know, and we were trapped in this building for about 45 minutes. Uh, all the while, I'm now slumped over in the kitchen somewhere, holding a fork. Apparently, I was going to defend myself with a fork, so that was kind of my <laughs> mental state. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of funny after the fact. Like, and I have to say, like, my wife was immensely brave in all of this. Like, she, she just kind of took charge of the situation. You know, she got the students boiling water, like literally we're, we're preparing to go to war here, pushed the fridge against the door, started arming them with pots, pans, knives, whatever we could find. Mm -hmm. And it was really, uh, you know, it was a, sort of this chaotic, surreal sort of scene, like we're, we're caught in like this siege, really. Um, one of the students did eventually manage to call the police and, and surprisingly they actually showed up, which is unusual. Again, the, the lower level South African police are incompetent to say that, to, to be generous because they don't care. They're only there to collect a paycheck and try to save their own skin. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the unfortunate reality of the situation. Yes, there are good police there. There are good specialized teams, but the lowest level of police, they don't care. They're just trying to not die. So, John, do you have any idea what the motive was for the attack? Um, they didn't know me, but what it would be is they they would have seen my wife and I coming and going from the nature reserve, right? Because we have to pass through the guard shack. Uh, every day to get onto the reserve and so one of these rangers would have like seen hey there's these these white people there, this, there was there was a racial motive to some degree like they didn't know who i was mm -hmm. but i say i maybe i could put it this way like i was a historical or i was a representation of something they had felt had historically oppressed them gotcha. you know because south africa has quite a quite a history and that's part of the reason why they don't just want to you know shoot you and be done with you they want to take back what they feel was taken from them. If we look at the psychology of it, you know, they want to beat you to death so that you suffer and you feel pain and you see their power over you and so on. Like there's some sort of perverse delight in that as well. And so, yeah, that really messed with my head going through that experience. I can't, I can't even imagine. Uh, that blows me away. Just, just listening to the details of it. 
you know, in, in thinking about, you know, in preparation for our conversation today is thinking about what does that actually look like and how on earth could that show up? And mm -hmm. then your description of it, 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 it has me shaking my head uh, even more. Switching gears. Mm, yeah. You know, thinking about the title of this episode, uh, Leveled Up Weight Loss. One of the things I mentioned in the intro that uh, the approach that you take is, is brain-driven weight loss where you're marrying, uh, you're, you're marrying metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and, and the compassion of human connection. How, mm. did, how does, did that approach help you personally lose more than 100 pounds and you've been able to maintain yeah. that? And then how does that translate to the clients that you ultimately serve. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'll just, I'll connect a couple dots here. So post-traumatic experience, I became a binge eating food addict and it wasn't a deliberate choice, but it's, it's what I used to uh, sort of unknowingly to cope with the trauma I had experienced. So uh, the way that I would describe is we live in a world filled with emotional anesthetics, whether it's drugs, alcohol, video games, binge, binge watching Netflix, pornography, uh, junk food, like, so there's all these different things for, I, I chose food, uh, you know, that's what led, to, and, and I gained about 120 pounds over a six month span, which sounds like this immense amount of weight, which it is. And people would go, didn't you notice? And that's mm. a fair question to ask, but unless you've been through like a traumatic experience, it's hard to understand sort of the dissociation, the mental dissociation that comes with going through experience like that. And so that, that was in my head, I was still this athlete, you know, I was a former basketball, volleyball player, weightlifter, that kind of thing. Like I was, I was fairly athletic. So in my mind, I was still that thing. And maybe I even thought, oh, I'd gained a little bit of weight, but I know I can just sort of get back to, you know, training or whatever and, and, and lose the weight. So that was kind of the backstory. And so for a number of years, I, I tried a variety of different methods to lose weight. Like you name a, one of the, any name diet, whether it's keto, paleo, vegan, I'll, I tried those things. Mm -hmm. I also use my sort of scientific background. I also have a background in marketing psychology. You know, I got really high level into supplement science. Part of my background is running a nutrition and supplement store. I was looking for answers in all the wrong places and I didn't realize it. And so there was a cycle of weight loss and weight regain. And a lot of people find themselves stuck in that cycle. We're actually not too bad as a society at temporarily losing weight. The real issue is how do we lose weight and keep it off? And that's like the holy grail here. But for so long we've been marketed to, you just have to do this thing for this amount of time to get to this place. And then it's happily ever after. And it turns out that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So I became very frustrated, very like self-loathing, self-hating, because I was trying to understand like, how can I be educated, intelligent? I even know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I can't seem to do it. How do I bridge that gap? And so my, my initial response as, as a male was to be like very hard on myself, push myself harder, train harder, diet harder, you know, use stimulants and things like that. And ultimately it led me to nearly having a nervous breakdown because our nervous system can only handle like so much extreme loading. And I was like sleeping less and training, you know, like I was just trying to punish my body into submission, mm -hmm. trying to bend it to my will. But it turns out our body's really good at surviving. I was like, no, 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 it's not going to work like this. So then came like, you know, recurring anxiety uh, episodes and things like that. And it's still connected to kind of the trauma that happened a few years back. But I kind of just, I was like, I felt so defeated. I don't even know what to do anymore. I, I'm supposed to know what to do. I've tried all these things. Nothing is working for me. I've even tried hiring coaches, 
but uh, nothing against the coaches. They weren't equipped to deal with my headspace and where I was at. I didn't even know the kind of help I was looking for until one day, uh, kind of a, a last ditch effort. I hired this coach. His name is Scott, you know, Scott quick. If you listen to the Scott, you changed my life. You know, this is the power of transformational coaching. And every year I try to acknowledge him um, because of the impact he's had on my life. And it's why I'm doing what I do today. So when, when I hired Scott, I thought I was hiring because I wanted to look like him. You know, he's in his 40s, jacked, looks good, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought, and, and in my mind, it was still this idea that if I could look like him, I'll be happy and maybe I won't hate myself, I guess. But I'm still stuck in all my old patterns, my old habits, my old beliefs, my old stories and narratives and things like that. So for the first four months, I tried my darndest without really consciously realizing it to convince Scott that I was a failure, a hopeless loser. There was no hope. This wasn't going to work. He couldn't help me. He couldn't reach me. I also expected him to be like coach hard ass and just like, you know, mm -hmm. just treat me like, like I felt like I was worthless. And I expected him to treat me the way that I was feeling about myself. And he didn't. And that kind of startled me a little bit. Like it was, it was unnerving. I was like, why aren't you doing the thing I'm expecting you to do? And what I didn't realize is he was modeling for me what compassion actually looks like. Interesting. So he wasn't enabling. He wasn't telling me to, oh, you've had a hard day. Just keep eating that pizza. But on the same token, he wasn't saying, look, you useless waste of skin. You know what to do. Why don't you pull up your big boy panties and do it? Right. Like compassion is really this middle road where it's like, let's remove judgment for the time being. And let's try to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And let's take away the story that you're a hopeless loser. And so he started to connect these dots for me. And, and, and it just, it, it, it sort of blossomed into this realization, like, I don't have to hate myself to get healthy. And in fact, so, cause I had these misconceptions around what, what does self-love look like? You know, especially as a male, I grew up in the 80s, kid of the 80s, you know, like self, we didn't talk about feelings. No, we didn't. We didn't talk about that kind of stuff at all. It, it, not, it, I mean, we, I, I don't remember even thinking about that yeah, back yeah. in the 1980s. No, uh, you know, and, and like, and I love my parents dearly. Um, and I think now with a level of understanding I have, I understand they did the best they could with what they had been equipped with by previous generations and, and society at the time that they were raised in and so on, you know. But they didn't necessarily lay the foundation for me to have a healthy relationship with my body or with food. And it, we could tr trace it back to, like I said, some of the factors in their life. This, they're, they're wonderful people. I love them dearly. They're married for 44 years. Like they're an amazing example, but Good they didn't you. know any different either. So it's like I had kind of this, this <laughs> not great sort of setting. So this was all new to me, this idea of self-love. And in my mind, maybe I picture it like, no, that's, that's a sissy thing. That's like bubble baths and like eating ice cream, lighting <laughs> candles, or, you know, that, that sort of self-indulgence, you know, and there's that's a time right. and a place for that, that sort of stuff. But like, and so we, with Scott, we approached it differently and we started with something really simple, but like brushing your teeth and you're thinking, what the heck does brushing your teeth have to do with like losing hundred pounds? But it's about like shifting a mindset. So brushing my teeth was an investment in myself. It's an investment in my future health. I'm going to be around, so I have to take care of my teeth. Mm -hmm. Subtle, subtle shift. Now, every time I repeat that behavior, I'm sending the message that I am worth investing in. And so we started to reframe some of these little activities that I was doing as like investments in self-care. You know, the next one was like, drink, drink some water when you wake up in the morning, hydrate, you know, 
And because you know, I would say, like, how do you shift a belief? And that's really what we were working on was how do you shift? I held this belief and this belief was dictating my attitude and my behavior. Yep. I wasn't worthy of self-love or self-care. And then, so whenever I did something that went against that belief, you know, practicing self-love or self-care, I would unknowingly sabotage my efforts because my brain goes, no, 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 this is not a worldview. You hate yourself and you can't succeed. That's the belief we hold. You know, so it's really fascinating when you get into sort of the psychology behind that. So we kind of just chipped away at it bit by bit. And over time, like stuff started to happen. Yes, we worked on nutrition. Yes, we worked on activity. We worked on stress management and sleep and things like that. But it was through this different perspective. And that, so that shaped my perspective on, well, how do we actually create lasting weight loss? Yeah. So let me get your take on this. As you just said that last part, one of the things that the 30,000 fad diets that are listed with the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States point directly to are, are the tactical ways to go about achieving mm. weight loss. That wasn't it doesn't seem like that was first for you. It seemed like the the tactics were on the other side of really leveling up mindset and making that shift in belief, almost in some ways slowing the negative momentum down or, or slowing down the negative feedback yeah. loop first in order to start getting momentum going back in the other direction. Am I capturing sort of the essence yeah. of that? Yeah, I love how you put that, like, especially that slowing down the negative momentum. Because I, I went into, and I think a lot of people go into a weight loss effort. Like I look at it now again from the perspective of our brain. You know, here's how our brain works. I'm at the place where I'm in so much pain and suffering and discomfort. I'm like, I have to do something. The time to change is now. I feel a sense of urgency. Oh, I got to do it. I can't keep going like this. So then I start thinking about now I'm open to ideas or solutions. And then I start thinking about, okay, if I'm going to do this program, here's the results that it's promising me, you know, because every program promises some kind of results, you know, mm -hmm. and then we start creating a picture in our brain of how we're going to look and how we're going to feel and what we'll be able to do. We start creating a subconscious picture of what life is going to be like after we achieve these results. Now our brain starts to reward us with dopamine, even though this is just taking place in our mind, it hasn't taken place in the real world, but we're getting dopamine. Now that surge in dopamine is really important because it naturally, our primal brain is very resistant to changing our habits and routines and behaviors, environment and so on, because our primal brain wants to keep us safe. So that surge in dopamine pushes us over our inherent resistance to change. Now we call that motivation, but in reality, your brain can't keep you high all the time. That surge in dopamine, if it kept that level of dopamine up, you're going to get desensitized to dopamine. And then from there, ordinary life becomes depressing. So what happens? Two, three, four weeks into this, that dopamine falls off, goes back to baseline. And now you're starting to think, well, I'm not motivated. This doesn't excite me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so on. So we, we started with this idea that this, see, motivation comes in waves. Like it comes in, there's not this. But I, you know, and I would start these things thinking this surge in motivation is going to be the thing that's going to carry me all the way to the finish line. Turns out it's not. Doesn't work so that we way. need a different, right. So we need a different approach. Motivation is nice. There's times when it's there and cool. We want to take advantage of when we get to enjoy it, but it cannot carry us all the way. So we've got to take a different approach. 
And so that's what sort of gets the wheels turning. So I have a, I'm a former engineer as well. Like I was a you know, nanotech research engineer. So I'm like, let me apply my brain to this. Can I engineer a way to work with our brain the way our brain works instead of trying to force this old model that doesn't work? It certainly sells a lot of books. <laughs> oh, it does. And maybe there's this thought, I don't know if there's, a, I don't think there's a nefarious conspiracy per se, No, I agree. but there's this idea that like the, the weight loss industry doesn't actually want you to succeed because they want to keep selling you products. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I guess there could be some element of truth, but I don't think there's like big weight loss that's like right. conspiring to keep, it's like, no, like, but I also like to frame things in terms of our biology. I think, you know, the way that I would think about this is we have a famine biology and we live in a feast world. So we're presented with options to eat hundreds of times a day. And it's mm -hmm. options to eat high bliss foods, foods that give us that dopamine response again, junk food, fast food, whatever. We also live in a really emotionally and mentally stressful world. Access to 24 seven news and media and social media all that is like really emotionally, mentally stressful. All the screen time, really excitatory for our brains. So you factor all these things in, plus the fact that our natural biology, the inclination is to move as little as possible, mm -hmm. conserve as much energy as possible, and only maintain the bare minimum of muscle to keep you alive. Because from the perspective of our body, body fat's a famine reserve, mm -hmm. helps us survive periods of food scarcity. So we have our biology as well as our environment, and we haven't gotten into like social and peer environment, like kind of nudging us towards being overweight. So that's, so we would look at like, why are we as a society, like 70% or more like overweight and obese? And it's like, there are these factors, but here's the reality. Those things aren't changing. Okay. So we can get pissed off. Sorry. We can, you know, okay. we can get angry. <laughs> we can scream and shout and pound our chest and be mad because this, this shouldn't be this way. But eventually we've got to make peace with the fact this is the world we live in. So if we're going to succeed, we've got to figure out how do we do it in this world? Yeah. I, I often say that if we live in a world of should'ves and shouldn'ts, it's the Bermuda Triangle of frustration. And you're exactly right. I mean, my, my background's in health and fitness as well. And in many ways, environmentally, we're behind the eight ball. We, you know, we walk into a grocery store and we think we have all of this choice, but we we're having the food stuff that's presented to us dictated by companies who want to try to sell us this stuff. Yeah. And so there, that's full of landmines. And then yeah. you consider the, the, the biological nature where, uh, you know, it's all about energy conservation and, um, but it really sounds like you crack the code both personally and then for your clients in, helping them not only navigate the environmental elements, but also getting their biology to work for them. And, yeah. and knowing there's a, just so much noise in the space, what do you think the best diet is? Then that's a four letter <laughs> word in, in, my, yeah. in my world. But what's the best diet for sustained uh, weight? Well, initial weight loss and then sustained weight <laughs> management. I'm what you would call a dietary agnostic. And so th there's a lot of like, if, if you will, gurus out there who, who get really attached to one particular dietary practice and promote that this is the way and they start to form, you know, acolytes. And there's almost like a cult like following that starts to take place and so on. 
So I approach this differently. Now, the thing is, if we look at all the, you listed like 30, I didn't realize there was that many, like lists on the FDA, 30,000 plus. But anyways, if you look at all of those and you go, okay, well, what are the common factors? Okay, they're probably going to tell you to get better sleep. They're probably going to somehow nudge you towards managing your stress to some degree proactively. And of course, they're going to probably have you eat more whole foods, less junk food, you know, hydrate and move your body. So there's some fundamental factors to being healthy that aren't going to change because this is our biology. So now the next thing is, okay, how do we make these factors work for you? That's the trick. Because if, if I say like, you have to, you know, cut out all carbohydrates or you have to do this other thing, like chances are that's not going to happen. And so my approach instead is to say, let's put this principle into practice. And I want you to practice this for at least two weeks. And then I want you to give me feedback. I want you to tell me, is this working for you? How is this working for you? How do we need to adjust this to make this work for you? What we're doing is we're taking a principle and shaping it so that you, the individual, are customizing it for your way of living, your lifestyle. And then we build the next piece in and the next piece. And we do it in this cumulative fashion where each there's this back and forth, this feedback, this try this, give some feedback, make some tweaks and so on. The whole process, what we're really doing is custom engineering your healthy lifestyle to fit your personal circumstances. By doing it in this way, we're not trying to take one giant leap and you're not going to follow 25 rules starting today. Like that's a guaranteed 100% chance of failure, mm -hmm. but just piece by piece. And so what my clients end up telling me is like, it feels like I'm not struggling anymore. I, it, I like I'm, I'm blown away by how much I've accomplished without feeling like I've, I've actually done all that much. And I'm like, well, it's it is not supposed to be, an endless struggle. It will be challenging. There's going to be times you want to quit. All of this is, is natural, right? Because you go, where does the compassion piece fit into this? Well, really how it fits in is one, if we understand our biology, if we understand our environment, we understand the factors that are kind of against us, we're less likely to get discouraged and beat ourselves down for our perceived failures. Now, this isn't to enable unhelpful behavior. It's not to give you a get out of jail free card. Yep. But rather say, let's let's defuse discouragement and the desire to quit by giving yourself space to be human and make mistakes. It's interesting how you describe that in the sense that so you're scaffolding different the application of different principles, you know, once you know, once we've laid the foundation of the previous principle, which is really cool. And then the feedback that your clients give you is, is not that dissimilar to how I describe sustained weight management, which is non-disruptive changes. Change mm -hmm. is hard and everybody knows yeah, that, yeah. You, you, especially, especially within our, our brain because our brain gravitates towards the familiar. Well, all of these fad diets and these extreme fitness programs really take us guardrail to guardrail and we're just not attuned to that versus mm -hmm. how can i how can i you know tweak these dials or pull these levers in such a way where the changes that we're making don't wreck someone's lifestyle for example if if someone yeah. likes cookies, I'm okay with having them eat cookies. Just don't eat the whole box of cookies mm. and, you know, teaching them how the, the hypothalamus works and, and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Well, 
yet there's still this industry that's a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. If you, if you had, if, if you had to give one piece of advice to someone who's been struggling, who's been on the, the roller coaster with this one bit of advice before embarking on a weight loss journey, what would that advice be? Hmm. I would say that compassionate awareness is the foundation of transformational change. So maybe I'll just can, briefly can, unpack that. Can, can you repeat that? Repeat that, John? <clears throat> compassionate awareness is the foundation of transformational change. Love that. So what I mean by that is, so we operate a lot on autopilot. I'll give you one example. Maybe you've driven to and from work. You get there and you go, I don't remember driving here, but somehow I got here safely. That's your brain running on autopilot. 95 to 98% of your brain function is, is automatic. You don't even think about it. So we have a very small amount of our brain power dedicated to conscious awareness. A lot of our unhelpful or unhealthy habits are really subconscious. So to change them, we actually have to bring them into the light. We have to become aware, consciously aware of what we're doing and even when we're doing it. Now, if we don't have compassion, what happens is we see ourselves doing these things, then we get frustrated and angry and start talking negatively. Compassion allows us to wrestle with our demons in the light, bring them into the light. Let's understand why you're doing this and let's take away the story that you're a bad person. Now, we can also flip that in reverse, and this is how we can create change that sticks. If you have to apply conscious brain power 100% of the time to try to create lasting change, you're going to fail. Right. So we have to work with you in a way that we go from conscious awareness to sort of habitual subconscious automatic behavior. And it's never going to be 100% perfectly automatic where you never think about it. But it's this balance of transitioning from always having to think about it to thinking about it less as it becomes a way of living. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate your perspective on that. I, I, I stumbled on that approach years ago and it's, it's just so easy. I actually had a coworker going back now almost eight or nine years that ended up losing 52 pounds at the time she was 51 years old and she did all the yo-yo diet. And I ended up uh, going to lunch with her a couple of years ago and she maintained all of it. And I asked her, I'm like, how have you, how have you done this? She just, she's like, it was easy. I just, I just followed these non-disruptive, you know, changes, but it, I wasn't speaking to how you spoke to it, but I was doing the same thing. It's utterly fascinating how it can be sustainable uh, for yeah. people. And so a couple more questions, John, before we, <laughs> before we wrap this up. Uh, you know, in addition to running your your business, you host the Between the Before and After podcast, which uh, I had an opportunity to to be a guest on, on this <laughs> yeah. show a couple of weeks ago and, and thoroughly enjoyed myself. You also have uh, a family with a young child. How, yeah. Yeah. how are you able to balance all of that? Um, it's never perfectly in balance. I'll be upfront because, uh, you know, I would love to project this image like I'm on cruise control in life. But when you think about somebody like walking a tightrope, we imagine them having like perfect balance. But what it is, is like every moment in time, there's like these series of muscular micro adjustments that keep them on the mm -hmm. tightrope. And so it's like, I, I, I'm pretty ruthless with my scheduling and my time. Like I'm pretty, like I, I use time blocking and, and I allocate time for family because I, I say, look, 
we live in a world where I could always fill my time, right? I, I work on the online world. The internet is full of distraction. I could literally just waste time away on YouTube rabbit holes, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I have to be pretty strict about blocking my time and sticking to that schedule with the awareness, again, there's going to come need for adjustments, you know? Hey, my wife has a work meeting. I got to look after the kid. I got to adjust this or this. But just understand and using compassion, understand, hey, this is like a balancing act. It's never going to feel perfectly at ease. But if I'm willing to kind of roll with it, make these little adjustments here, there, like I have my foundation. Here's how I structure my day, give or take. And then I'm willing to make adjustments on the fly as need be and and sort of just maintain this sort of walking the tightrope. You know, the spirit of the Quest for Life podcast this season is all about leveling up mindset to achieve peak performance. One of the recurring themes is managing a calendar. It's extraordinarily straightforward and basic. And I don't know about you, but what I find is being able to achieve peak performance is prioritizing those things that we might not want to do first get those out of the way so we can then eat the frog. A, that's right. That's exactly it. Uh, and then we get on to things that we, that we more thoroughly enjoy, but, and, and then, but because like Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about a calendar, some people viewing that as a prison and yeah. the, the framework actually provides a lot of freedom. Have you found that as mm, well? Absolutely. So I, I love this because we have maybe this idea in our head that like no rules is freedom. And actually, no rules is chaos. Mm-hmm. It actually, it works horribly. And and, and I, I'm a father of a young child. And I got another one on the way, which is exciting. Um, now, when you think about if I just gave him no boundaries whatsoever, I'm like, do whatever you want, kid. This kid is going to, he's, he's going to suffer from anxiety. He's going to suffer from all kinds of issues because they're actually, we actually like enjoy boundaries. A little bit of structure to give us guidance, but we don't like a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about like maybe the bumper rails in the bowling alley. They're there, you bump into them. So you don't end up in the gutter, but within there, there's, there's, we, we allow ourselves some wiggle room. So within structure, I, I get structured flexibility is what I call it. And, and that's kind of what I give myself. The structure gives a sense of security without feeling overly restrictive. And that, that's kind of the, the place that I think um, we, we, we flourish the most in. Yeah. Congratulations on being uh, an expectant father. Thank is that <laughs> later, later this year? It is. So at the time of recording, it'll be um, August of, of this year. Well, good, good for you. Be sure to pass on uh, my best to your, your wife. I mean, because she's doing all the work, John, at this point. Oh, man. <laughs> motherhood, motherhood's amazing. You want to talk about, like, amazing. Motherhood is just, wow. Yeah. So, Coach John, thank you so much for your wisdom and insights um, that you've provided today. So for my listeners, how can they mm. learn more about you and your work? Mm. So on the nutrition coaching side, uh, you can look at freedomnutritioncoach.com. And that name comes from a client who said, I don't want to live in nutrition prison anymore. <laughs> so freedomnutritioncoach.com. Um, you'll find more information about what I do with nutrition coaching. And of course, uh, if you're a fan of podcasts, I would love to share my podcast between the before and after. And that's really about exploring people's stories of overcoming adversity in life. And the reason I have this podcast is because of the way that, you know, we as human beings are inspired by stories. We read ourselves into it and we look for hope in them. And so ultimately the goal of the podcast is to share hope and inspiration with people by talking about how people have went through adversity and how they've come out the other side of it. So uh, I'd love people to give that a listen. Yeah. And it certainly does. Coach John, thank you so much 
uh, again for being on the Quest for Life podcast. Uh, be well, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. As we wrap up another episode of the Quest for Life podcast, I encourage you to give some thought to the wisdom and insights Coach John provided and how it can apply to your life or the life of someone you know. There's little doubt that implementing one or more of his insights will level up your mindset so you can level up your performance. As always, it's food for thought, fellow Questers. Be sure to follow or subscribe to the show and pass it on to a friend. You can download the show notes at thequestforlife.com. That's thequest4life.com. You can also contact me if you're interested in learning more about leveling up your mindset to achieve peak performance in all areas of your life. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining the conversation.